Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. There's a lot to learn about authenticity from the Rilke's story and from the poems that he writes in order to express what is actually going on with him authentically and to express that inauthenticity because that's what's going on and to also disguise it with a kind of hermeneutic obscurity, meaning he makes it difficult for you to understand what he's really saying. Have any, has anyone encountered that in reading these elegies? So I'd like to, if possible, make it more uh, open and clear what he is telling us about uh, his own life. So before I start that, I want to give a rundown, a kind of a, um, uh, a, a, a very short uh, biographical uh, explanation of, of, of how I see uh, Rilke and, uh, and the significance of his life uh, for himself, but also for us. I think for us, uh, he's, he's, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he took birth as Leonard Cohen, um, because their two are very similar, both being obsessed with poetry and with women, uh, and not able to commit to any relationship and, uh, and, and leaving them uh, before uh, any commitment could uh, develop, having a very strong narcissism, but at the same time, a, a deep honesty that wants to grow and develop out of it, which Cohen uh, eventually did, I, I think, in the final phase of his life after going through the Zen monastic period. And those, those, that last uh, uh, concert tour, I, I think, was uh, an amazing uh, revelation of, uh, of his, the beauty of his soul that was always there uh, underlying the, the narcissistic mask that, that could not uh, uh, touch into the, the trauma that was uh, around his heart, but that was finally overcome in his, uh, his meditative practice. So I think in a way the same thing happened uh, for Rilke and in part uh, through these final poems that he wrote near the end of his, uh, his life. In my opinion, Rilke suffered from what I call double soul syndrome. And uh, <clears throat> probably conventional uh, psychologists would call it uh, 
replacement child syndrome. It's very similar to something Teachers are supposed to do that if they're authentic, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> Vincent van Gogh syndrome. I, this is what I discovered many years ago. I don't, they're not the same, but they're very similar. And I discovered it, it, it when I was uh, <clears throat> still doing uh, hypnotherapy and past life regression therapy. I had a client who uh, had that situation and in my research, I discovered that this was the case uh, with Vincent van Gogh. If, uh, if you uh, know his uh, biography, he had a brother who died in early childhood, and the brother's name was Vincent van Gogh. Even the, the, his middle name, I think it was Willem or something, was the same. The exact same name. And they didn't tell uh, the second Vincent about the first. The parents didn't, didn't mention it. But one day when he was a child, still four or five years old, he was walking through the local cemetery and he saw a gravestone with his name on it. And this totally shocked him. And this was, this was the, the moment, the pure event that changed his life. And, and of course he discovered that, that indeed he was a replacement child and the parents gave the exact same name uh, and he may or may not have been the same soul as that previous child. Uh, I, I'm not certain about that, but the fact that he recognized that, um, <clears throat> that grave as himself, he took it as if he was the same. And at that moment, he no longer knew whether he was alive or dead, or should be alive or dead, or if he was the one in the grave and the other one was in his body. He, he became totally confused about his identity, his authentic identity. And this was one of the major factors, obviously, that led into his, his life. Well, with Rilke, it's more clear that uh, his mother had a daughter, and she died a year, she died a week after she was born. And Rilke was born a year later. The mother named the daughter Renee. She gave him the name Renee. That was his birth name, Renee Maria Rilke. And he was raised as a girl. He was raised as her daughter. Until the age of six, he was her daughter. There's a, a, a very good biography. It doesn't talk about it in the terms that I am. I am talking about it as a double soul uh, situation. But uh, you, you've probably seen this because it's, it's online. Pictures of him dressed as a girl. It's not a big uh, picture, but uh, you know, he, he is a girl. He, he is given a female identity for the first six years, and he takes it on as his conscious identity. He is Renee, the daughter of his mother, Sophia, who calls herself Thea. <clears throat> now, his mother, 
his mother was, they were, remember, he was born in Prague in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, <clears throat> and he was one of the uh, German speakers, and the German speakers were the upper class over the Czech speakers and the Hungarians who were the lower classes. Uh, and the mother was very uh, insistent on social climbing. She wanted to be, uh, get, get a title of royalty. Her, her husband's brother was a successful lawyer and he got the title. He was von Rilke, uh, Jaroslav von, he got the von. Uh, she wanted the von, you know, and, uh, but the husband failed to get it. He didn't rise high enough and he, he was uh, diverted in his career into the, running a railway or being an officer in a railway. He didn't make it to that level and didn't make, have enough money. And so she, she pretended she was a nobility. She, she lived a fake life, pretending she was higher than she was in order to try to sustain an upper class uh, uh, identity and pass that also on to her daughter, Renee Rilke, who has obviously transgender issues and, and certainly gender dysphoria at a minimum as a result of this. Uh, and not only that, but she made him, her, her trophy, and, uh, and in parties she forced him to memorize poems and declaim them aloud to her friends. Okay? So in, in a way she commanded him to become a poet. That was his job. All right? So was his poetry an authentic calling from within him, or did it come from the mother? and the need to have the mother's approval. So authenticity is certainly in doubt, right, of this, this poor child's life from the very beginning. And he often dreams as a child of being crushed by his sister's gravestone. Okay, it's, uh, it's I think, a very important uh, point. I'll even read it. In a childhood from the, this, this is a very good biography. It's called You Must Change Your Life. And it's a double biography, interesting for double souls, uh, of, of Rilke and Auguste Rodin. Rodin, the sculptor, famous sculptor, lived in Paris, uh, was, was much older than Rilke and became his father figure later uh, in life. We'll talk about that later. And, uh, and became a very important uh, uh, figure in his destiny. So, uh, I was gonna read this. <clears throat> in a childhood dream, the young poet lay on a bed of dirt beside an open grave, a tombstone etched with the name Rene Rilke which was the daughter's name and his, loomed overhead. He did not dare lift a limb for fear that the slightest movement might topple the heavy stone and knock him into the grave. The only way to escape his paralysis was to somehow change the engraving on the stone from his name to his sister's, but he did not know how to do it. He did, but he understood that freedom required rewriting his fate. He couldn't do it because they had the same name. Imagine the trauma and the helplessness when you're identified with a dead girl and you're being raised in that way. 
The fear of being crushed by a rock became a recurring theme in the boy's nightmares. It wasn't in every case a tombstone, but it was always something too big, too hard, too close, too heavy, and it often portended a painful transformation. A rebirth contingent upon the downfall of that which came before him. Okay, so it was a, it, it, the downfall, you will notice, happens at the very end of the 10th uh, elegy as well, but we'll get into that later. So, uh, <clears throat> let's see. The parents uh, did not get along. The mother was always attacking the father for being a failure and not uh, getting her the title that she wanted. They divorced uh, when he was, I think, about 10, and, uh, and then uh, he was sent to military academy. Now, can you imagine someone raised as a girl who is sent to a military academy? Uh, he was totally bullied there and, and abused. I mean, he was an outcast. He did not fit in, and he uh, took to creating psychosomatic symptoms to get away from it. He went to the infirmary a lot, and in the infirmary, he, he read poetry. And that was the only way he survived. So what a torment, right, for years uh, for this person who didn't know whether he was a girl or a boy to, to be forced into this hyper-masculine uh, uh, society where he was definitely too, uh, too, too weak and too effeminate to, to fit in. <clears throat> so uh, he, he eventually uh, escaped, and uh, this rich uncle, who was successful, uh, supported him in his education on the condition that he would one day get a law degree because the uncle was a lawyer and he thought, okay, he'll come and join his law firm and right, uh, become, uh, become his own trophy. Well, he had no interest in doing that and probably no ability uh, to really uh, have what it took to be, to be a lawyer, frankly. And uh, instead, he went to the University of Munich and he joined the Bohemians. They were real Bohemians, uh, uh, but they were very much into the new fad, which was reading Nietzsche. Nietzsche was still alive. In fact, he was in his, his prime and, and was, was writing uh, all of these uh, books of God is dead and, uh, and free thinking. And this whole idea of breaking all the rules of society and, uh, and living uh, anarchically uh, was in the air. At one point, he got introduced to Lou Andrea Salome, a very famous and in some ways infamous uh, woman of the time, uh, extremely intelligent and uh, extremely well-connected. And at the, at the time, she had just uh, broken up from a menage a trois that she was living with uh, two philosophers, Paul Ray, who you may not have heard of, but was uh, an excellent philosopher at the time, and Nietzsche himself. The three of them lived together for some time. Uh, and then uh, uh, there was jealousy between them, and she chose Ray over Nietzsche. She dumped Nietzsche, who was not very happy about it, and, uh, and this, this created a huge depressive effect 
in Nietzsche, as we know. So, uh, but it was at that, that point then that, uh, that eventually she broke up also with the other guy and she was at loose ends and she took Rilke as a lover. But she, she kept an open relationship and she was uh, constantly with other men as well. And, uh, and she, she became his new mother figure. But the good thing about Andrea Salome was she wanted him to be a man, not a woman. She changed his name from Rene to Reiner. Very masculine name, right? She, gave, she turned him into a man. She gave him an ideal ego, to use Freudian terms, and she, was, she became a Freudian psychoanalyst later, authorized. She studied with Freud, and she almost brought him into psych, to be psychoanalyzed, but fortunately he didn't. I don't think it would have been good for him. But in any case, uh, because they wouldn't have understood double soul syndrome. They would have called him a multiple personality disorder or uh, now it would be called dissociated identity disorder or whatever. But uh, I, I don't think that would have, uh, would, would have accomplished the exorcism that he required. So she changed his name and, uh, and turned him into uh, a much more manly being, took him on trips to Russia to meet Tolstoy, etc. Tolstoy, of course, had no interest in, in Rilke or in Andrea Salome and, and uh, uh, told them both that they were on a wrong path, that modern poetry was godless, narcissistic, and uh, nihilistic, and uh, they should return to a more spiritual kind of life. And, and give up all of the free sex, et cetera, that, uh, that Andrea Salome was into uh, and, uh, and was teaching uh, Reiner about. So, uh, so, so their trips to Russia did not, did not uh, bring them the kind of connection to uh, uh, the, the literary sources. They also visited Boris Pasternak. They visited other poets. They tried to get to Chekhov but couldn't... Uh, couldn't find him, uh, and, uh, and they, they came back somewhat um, not uh, uh, gratified by all of that effort. Uh, but um, but she, did, uh, she did turn him into uh, a, a much more masculine being. She also turned him into a vegetarian. And she was into earthing, which is what they call it now, which is walking barefoot all the time. So he walked barefoot through uh, Prague and uh, Munich and wherever he was. And, uh, and he became uh, a very uh, a hippie before the avant la lettre, as the French say. Uh, but then she entered into another open marriage, uh, which she already did before they went to, to Russia. In fact, the three, the three of them went together to Russia, which also was, was a little bit uh, not appreciated by Tolstoy. But in any case, uh, Rilke clung to Lou like a puppy. And it was very interesting because it was around this time that he, uh, he got letters from another uh, young guy coming out of military academy who wanted to be a poet, very much like him. And he wrote back to this guy many letters that eventually became published as letters to a young poet in which he said, you must be in solitude and all of this. But he couldn't be away from her for one day. He hated solitude. Uh, so his letters are not very authentic. 
uh, you know, he was writing to himself, perhaps, that this is what he should do, but it wasn't like he was doing it and giving advice from someone who had, had made it. So, uh, she, uh, when she was away or with another man, he, he would have temper tantrums. Uh, she left for Berlin at some point, and, and, and he dropped out of school just to follow her and be with her. But he got so needy that she couldn't stand it anymore, and she dumped him. Uh, he wouldn't give up, and, and, and she had to become almost violent and throw him out and say, don't ever talk to me again. But he continued to write her many desperate letters and love poems, including a book called The Book of Hours, which was his, his first famous book, and I may read from, from some of those as well. But she, she left uh, to, ha to do her own life and didn't see him for many years, and in that time she became a Freudian analyst. But he was desperate to make it in the literary field, and, the, and, and so uh, the first thing he tried was he translated Chekhov's play, The Seagull, into German, and then wrote Chekhov and said, look what I've done. Uh, and, he, and he wrote many letters to Chekhov, none of which were answered. Chekhov had no interest in it, and he, he ended up totally depressed that he was unable to make that connection. Uh, but so you, again, you see how he's trying to cling uh, to, to be recognized and approved by others. He, and he's not able to write his own material. He, he can only uh, imitate or translate, but not yet uh, uh, create in a true sense. And even in the Book of Hours, although they are a, uh, a more, uh, let's say, conventionally spiritual or at least religious a mode of, uh, of discourse, I would say that they, they also lack authenticity, which we'll get into. So at that point, he was invited to join a, an artist colony, or at least to come to it, named Vorpswede in Germany, where again, he did not fit in, and uh, the artists there did not like his poetry, and they did not think it was authentic. However, he met a, a woman uh, a sculptor there, Clara Westhoff, and, uh, and they connected. She was very lonely, and they soon got married uh, and had a daughter named, they named Ruth. And then, very shortly after her birth, he skipped out. He left them both. Okay? He could not handle being either a husband or a father. So how that fits in your authenticity thermometer, I'll let you decide. But in any case, he wrote a, a, a monograph about the artist colony later, and the chief artist wrote a review of it uh, and said there's a lot of talk and beautiful sentences, but the nut is hollow at its core. So uh, that, was, that was the, uh, the judgment uh, uh, about him by people who knew him. So uh, th this should... Uh, at least create some uh, some sense of of that unreality that he himself admitted. He wrote in, he continued to write letters to Lou Andreas Salome, and he said, "I can't be real. I don't know how to be real," uh, and it was uh, traumatic for him. Well, he ran away to Paris, 
and he got a commission to write a, a, a monograph about Rodin, who was already becoming a famous sculptor. And so he, uh, Rodin was very uh, complimented by this and invited him to stay with him and, uh, and uh, eventually took him on and hired him as his personal secretary because Rodin was totally you know, uh, unable to function in a business uh, setting. All he could do was, was his sculpting, but uh, he was also relatively dysfunctional in, in social terms. Uh, but uh, in the same way that uh, Andrea Salome became his ideal ego that enabled him to, to consider himself a man, Rodin provided his ego ideal, which enabled him to have the momentum and the, uh, the, the willpower to pursue a career as a poet. And uh, real, uh, Rodin's uh, motto that, that he was always repeating because he liked to repeat wise aphorisms to his secretary, was uh, travailler, toujours travailler. Every day work, create new art. Don't let a day go by where you're not working and functioning as an artist, right? So that, that gave him the push he needed uh, to keep going. Well, eventually Clara, who was a sculptor, also wanted to know Rodin and get that connection and, uh, and rise in the sculpting world. And so she came to Paris, but without their daughter. So now both of them abandoned Ruth and, uh, and, and uh, they lived uh, near each other in Paris, but uh, they did not live together. They, they lived in apartments that were close by, I think in the same apartment building, but not not uh, living as husband and wife. And, uh, and he continued to have his psychosomatic illnesses. He, 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 he got the flu, COVID he got very often. <laughs> In fact, he had long COVID uh, because uh, it just didn't go away. Uh, and so he left Paris and went to the Mediterranean for the warmth and all of that. And, um, but mostly he did it to get away from Clara quite frankly, and uh, he had hoped that marriage and fatherhood would enable him to dig roots and make him more, uh, quote, uh, this was in a letter he wrote to Lou, more tangible, more factual, more, but, more real, but it remained, uh, in quotes, a reality outside me. He felt like a ghost. He yearned to become authentic, uh, and, and he said, this is the change for which I yearn so strongly, to be a real person among real things. Okay, so he was authentically expressing his inauthenticity. Okay, he was unable to make any money as a poet and he could not write very much, even with Rodin's pushing him. Uh, and so uh, he, uh, uh, he, he continued uh, as, uh, as a secretary, but, uh, but, but did not do much of his own work. And, uh, but during that period, and for, for his whole life after that, he continued to have numerous sexual affairs, but he could never commit to any relationship. And as soon as he was actually accepted by a woman, he basically needed to start uh, moving out and, and leaving her. He felt that to, to be loved by another was to be possessed 
and controlled and destroyed, and he could not uh, give himself to that. But for the most part, throughout this period, he was in agony because he had writer's block. He was not able to produce poetry for most, uh, most of his life, actually. The writing that he did, both the elegies and the, uh, uh, the sonnets to Orpheus, which are his main works, were written in a frenzy in a few weeks uh, in, in 1922. But until that time, he was, he was almost uh, unable to write, with the exception of this novel, uh, The Notebooks of Malta, Laurids Briga. He did have a few other books of poetry. I'm not saying he didn't write at all, but uh, it, it was not much for all of this, this period of time. And he remained uh, depressed the whole time. And it was a very depressing novel uh, about a character who was uh, uh, unable to function in Paris and just feeling the heaviness and the corruption and the despair and the poverty and the hopelessness of life. And he was expressing in this uh, character his own weak ego that was unable to come out of the ghetto uh, of his, uh, his despairing life. Uh, so he wrote uh, one paragraph from the novel is, to be loved means to be consumed in flames. To love is to give light with inexhaustible oil, but to be loved is to pass away. To love is to endure, but he could only love without an object, without another. And, uh, and he ended up only being able to love poetry. He could not love anything but that. But I'll explain to you why that uh, ended up being the case. So uh, the, the important event that happened in 1912 was that he was invited by a princess. Uh, the Princess Marie von Thurn und Taxis von Hohenlohe, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> this name was made fun of by Thomas Pynchon in Gravity's Rainbow, if anybody ever read that book, but uh, he has a character with that name. So, anyway, He also has a character named, uh, I think, Madame Frenesi from uh, uh, the... Uh, the, the um, the, the book, uh, uh, what is it, poetry, uh, La Vida es Sueño, right? Que es la vida un frenesí, una sombra, una ficción, que la más grande bien es pequeño, que toda la vida es sueño, y los sueños, sueños son. So he was, uh, he was into that, into dreams, that's all, and his life was a frenzy, both Pynchon and uh, Rilke. But in any case, he came to the Duino Castle, this incredible castle on the Adriatic Sea, where the princess, was, she was very wealthy and very well connected, and they had constantly parties. And every week, they held a seance. They invited a medium to come, and the medium would um, uh, invoke spirits who would speak to them. And at one of these seances, his sister came to speak to him. And that's when he realized consciously that his sister, although she had died, she hadn't left, and she was still living in his body. And this was the reason for his drive conflict. This was the reason for his inability to live. This was the reason why he could not uh, decide still if he was a man or a woman, and he could not commit 
to a relationship or to life because he was partly identified with the one who is dead. So he's, uh, he's, he's experiencing all this in the Duino castle and, uh, and then uh, the princess leaves and uh, he's alone there. And then he hears uh, a voice. Well, actually what happens is he receives a letter uh, I think in one of these books, maybe it's even in, uh, in the notes to, uh, uh, to Stephen Mitchell's uh, translation, that it's a business letter. Uh, but it's not a business letter. It's a letter from his wife's lawyer who is filing for divorce and she wants child support. Uh, and he has no money. So he's in agony over, uh, over having to deal with this legal situation. And in, in that moment, he, he goes out in a storm and he hears a voice. It's usually interpreted that he's hearing the voice of an angel, but he's not. He's hearing a voice asking him whether if, he call, if, if an angel was called, would it hear him? The voice that was calling him was Rene. And at that moment, Rene and Reiner began a relationship that was conscious as well as what it had been before subconscious. And now, uh, what's happened that eventually led to the, the Duino elegies uh, and I would title them uh, the love songs of Rene and Reiner because it's a dialogue, not a monologue, a dialogue that's going on between the two of them that's being written in these elegies. So, okay, in any case, you probably figured all this out anyway, so. Uh, but uh, what happened, of course, is World War I took place and uh, he stupidly got stuck in Austria and didn't pay attention uh, to the, the situation. He wanted to go there to meet Lou, but she realized what was happening and she left for Paris. She didn't want to be stuck in Germany at that point. And, uh, and so uh, they, they did not meet and he ended up you know, uh, horribly getting uh, uh, recruited into the army, I mean, drafted into the army. Fortunately, he had a desk job that was meaningless, and they got him out early, but nonetheless, uh, it, it, again, it was like the military academy, and he was re-traumatized. And, uh, and then after the war, he was still having a writer's block, and, uh, and he was not as close to, uh, to Rodin as before, and uh, he eventually, I won't go through all the details of his life, but in a nutshell, he, he was offered another small chateau, Muzot, to live in, where for a while he brought a woman named Baladin Klosowska and her two sons. One of her, those sons, uh, the elder, who was a, a teenager, but an older teenager, was Pierre Klosowski. Now, I don't know if any of you remember that name, but Pierre Klosowski wrote a biography of Nietzsche. And we studied, we, we saw a video of a guy who, wrote, who did a, a lecture about Klosowski's book of Nietzsche, and I talked about Nietzsche that evening. But in any case, he became, and I wouldn't say a, a father figure for him, but at least a, a mentor. 
and the other a brother who became a, uh, a painter. Uh, but they both left. He couldn't, he couldn't uh, hold on to that relationship either. And, uh, and he was left alone in this chateau and he couldn't handle the solitude and he decided to end his life. There, there's a myth, but I think it has a lot of truth to it, that he was actually visited by a very famous uh, woman, a beautiful woman, an Egyptian model, uh, and he picked for her a bouquet of roses. This is the story that, that is very often told. And, uh, and uh, he was, his hand was uh, pricked by a thorn, became infected, the infection spread, and that eventually killed him. Others say it was leukemia, but in any case, uh, it, it, it fits the story because the final words that he asked to be etched on his tombstone were, Rose, O pure contradiction, desire to be no one's sleep beneath so many lids. So, who is, who is the rose? I, I think that's the, there's a koan in that writing, and I want to get to that by uh, beginning a, a reading of the, uh, the elegies, which I think will explain everything. But maybe before I do that, I should ask if there are any questions or comments about his biography so far. Yes. I was under the impression that he was channeling, like it just kind of felt like this voice that he was hearing was doing, he was dictating. Wasn't there a section that said it was like he was taking dictation, that these, this was coming to him, it wasn't? Yeah, he was taking dictation, but I think it was from his sister. Okay. And, and, uh, and I think it's very important. I, first of all, let me, uh, I want to go into that, but uh, yes, he was taking dictation in the sense that that he himself was almost paralyzed, but there, there, he was taking dictation sometimes from the sister and other times he was replying, and I don't think that was dictation. I think that was his relatively authentic male ego uh, talking to the female. Now, Jungians would say it was the anima and the animus, and uh, you know, other words would be given by different uh, schools of thought. But I am I'm very certain it's, uh, it's a question of two souls being uh, present in one body uh, that are trying to work out and reconcile a conflict that is, uh, is destroying his life. So, uh, and he says that the, the, the elegies belong to the princess. Why do they belong to her? Well, I think because she arranged the seances that created the relationship uh, consciously that enabled uh, the elegies to be written. So, let's, let's go into the first elegy. Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angels' hierarchies? By the way, there are uh, other translations that I think are better than this one, but, the, but every translation fails at certain points to be, mm, I think, uh, authentic and, and to really get what he's saying. I think Mitchell's, uh, in general, is pretty workmanlike, but there are times when I would want to read from, uh, from one or two others uh, that I think are, in some ways, more accurate. And I like the Spender one because it has this uh, frontispiece of the 
uh, Picasso's painting, Les Saltimbanques. I don't know if you know this painting, but the fifth elegy is about this painting. And he was staying at a rich woman's house. She was an art collector, and this painting was on the wall, and he was meditating on it. These acrobats that are called wanderers there, but acrobat is really the word. Uh, but, but I think it's a, a very important uh, element. So, so what I'm, uh, I'm proposing is that you consider that it's the sister speaking. The sister is asking him, who if I cried out would hear me among the angels? Uh, and even if one of them pressed me suddenly against his heart, I'd be consumed in that overwhelming existence. So, so uh, the sister's fear of leaving him as an earthbound spirit and going to, uh, to the light, the fear of going through the, what we call the second death, right? She died as a bodily being, but she didn't die as an ego. Uh, the ego stayed and she remained earthbound. And she, she obviously then didn't go through the third death of the soul into spirit. So she's afraid. Uh, for beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we are still just able to endure. And we are awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Every angel is terror, terrifying. So remember, here she, do, she doesn't call God. God never comes up in any of these elegies. As far as he gets is the angel. And, and, and he won't, she won't go with the angel. He's trying to convince her to go with an angel and leave him and let him be in the body without her. Uh, but at the same time, he loves her and is also afraid to lose her. So both of them are terrified that the angel might actually hear the call and come and take her away. So there's, there's both a, a desire and a fear of, uh, of being released into the light because the ego will be annihilated. And so I hold myself back and swallow the call note of my dark sobbing. So she doesn't call the angel. This is very important, nor does he. And, uh, but there's the sorrow of the situation of two incompatible entities abiding in one body who cannot reconcile their conflicting drives. They cannot find peace. They cannot harmonize their relationship. So it, eventually he realizes he can't get rid of her. She won't leave. And he settles for an attempt to harmonize that relationship in the body. And I think that's really uh, how far he gets in the elegy. But he cannot finally uh, be free uh, of her presence. So... Uh, ah, whom can we ever turn to in our need? Not angels, not humans, because how many humans would understand their situation and be able to do an exorcism appropriately? And already the knowing animals are aware that we are not really at home in our interpreted world. In other words, they live in a world of, of words, of poetry, not they don't live in real one. He's, he's in Laia land, both of them are. They're, they're not fully present. They're spaced out. Uh, and, and I think and that he can't function. Uh, and and this, is, uh, this is very important. And I think that the idea that the animals are aware is also a very a subtle truth. You know, animals know when there's a ghost in the room. 
If you have a cat, it'll start bristling, or a dog will start growling if a ghost comes through the room, even if you're not aware of it. And you'll say, what's going on? Why are you upset? The animal knows. They perceive the electromagnetic energy of the, of the aura of this entity. Uh, maybe some of you can also feel it. Uh, a lot of people who went out of body in childhood and are hyper-psychic uh, uh, can feel that presence, but most people can't. So, uh, perhaps there remains for us some tree on a hillside which every day we can take into our vision. There remains for us yesterday's street and the loyalty of a habit so much at ease when it stayed with us that it moved in and never left. So there are a few situations in which the two souls can be at peace with each other and they can, they can live and they can function in real one. But, but it's not very often. And then he, he goes on, oh, and night. There is night when a wind full of infinite space gnaws at our faces. So the infinite, the void, terrifies them. And, and, and both of them are uh, afraid of, of this infinite wind, which is also spirit, right? Whom would it not remained, remain for, that longed after mildly disillusioning presence, which the solitary heart so painfully meets? Uh, so, okay, I'll, I'll keep going for a little bit. Is it any less difficult for lovers so he's trying to, to figure out if people who can actually have a relationship with another bodily being have, have less difficulty with their love because he's trying to love a, a bodiless being. But they keep on using each other to hide their own fate. So he has used others, he used women to uh, avoid his inner conflicts. He was not able to have actual relationships with them. And then he says, don't you know yet? What, do, what don't you know? Don't you know yet that I am two souls in one body? Fling the emptiness out of your arms into the spaces we breathe. Perhaps the birds will feel the expanded air with more passionate flying. He wants to fling her uh, out of his, uh, his arms and, and let her go. And uh, the birds as animals would feel the presence of her while they fly but uh, he can't do it. Yes, the springtimes needed you. Often a star was waiting for you to notice it. A wave rolled toward you out of the distant past. Or as he walked under an open window, a violin yielded itself to your hearing. He's trying to feel needed by life. Uh, but, and his mission became to turn life into poetry. All this was a mission. But could you accomplish it? Weren't you always distracted by expectation, as if every event announced a beloved, announced a new woman coming into his life, in other words? Where can you find a place to keep her? Where could you, how could you keep a, a relationship with another woman with all the huge, strange thoughts inside you coming and going and often staying all night? So the, the only place in which these two souls feel unity is that both of them were commanded to be poets, right? Both of them were given that command by the mother. And so in turning life into poetry, they could be at peace. And eventually 
he turns her into his muse. Uh, and, uh, uh, and she is able to, to function that way. In fact, in the uh, sonnets to Orpheus, let me see if I can find the one. Uh, let me read this, the, the second sonnet to Orpheus. And it was almost a girl and came to be. Okay, interesting first line, right? It was almost a girl and came to be out of this single joy of song and lyre. So finally, there could be a singleness of joy. And through her green veils shone forth radiantly and made herself a bed inside my ear. Okay, so instead of causing chaos to him and hating him because he had stolen her body, he had turned the body into a male body. He had turned her into Reiner and killed Renee. She was upset about that. Uh, she accepted. As long as he became a poet, she would go to sleep in his ear and send him his poet. He would take the dictation from her in his ear, right? Okay, and slept there. And her sleep was everything. In other words, it didn't cause him chaos. He didn't hear her voice always complaining. Uh, the awesome trees, the distances I had felt so deeply that I could touch them, meadows in spring, all wonders that had ever seized my heart. She slept the world, singing God. How was that first sleep so perfect that she had no desire ever to wake? See, she arose and slept. Where is her death now? Ah, will you discover this theme before your song consumes itself? Where is she vanishing? A girl, almost. Okay, so he's giving her credit. He, he's, uh, he's taking her dictations and writing poems to her, but also by her. And that is what enables him to live in relative single-mindedness. Okay, <clears throat> so uh, going back to the first elegy. But when you feel longing, sing of women in love. Women in love. For their famous passion is not immortal. Actually, in other translations, it, it says not immortal enough. Uh, so it, it's not enough to keep him alive. The immortality that he reads in the poetry of these famous uh, women lovers of the past it doesn't, doesn't give him the strength that he wants. So, so he envies them, right? Sing of women abandoned and desolate. Uh, he's abandoned and desolate, but he's not alone. He can't get away from this other soul. You envy them almost. Who could love so much more purely than those who were gratified? Begin again and again the never attainable praising what praising is he talking about? I think what he's saying is he cannot achieve self-love. He cannot love himself because he is split into two selves. Uh, and, and so uh, one self is always hating the other and wanting the other uh, to be gone. So he says, remember, the hero lives on. Even his downfall was merely a pretext for achieving his final birth. But nature, spent and exhausted, takes lovers back into herself as if there were not enough strength to create them a second time. In other words, there's not enough of spiritual strength for her 
to properly die and be reborn in another life. So have you imagined Gaspara Stampa? Now I think he's now talking to the sister intensely enough so that any girl deserted by her beloved might be inspired by that fierce example of soaring objectless love and might say to herself, perhaps I can be like her. He's telling his sister to accept the fact that she's been abandoned by the mother and by her body that's now male and she should rise, she should go into objectless love, into love that is the love of the self and, and uh, soar out of the body and leave him. Shouldn't this most ancient of sufferings finally grow more fruitful for us, for both her and for me, right? For the sister and for the brother. Isn't it time that we lovingly freed ourselves from the beloved and quivering endured? As the arrow endures the bowstring's tension, so that, gathered in the snap of release, it can be more than itself, for there is no place where we can remain. So he wants to be the bow and turn her into the arrow and shoot her into the light and let her be gone into the angelic realms so he can be a man, finally, and not be half woman and half dead. So he goes on, voices, voices. He's hearing her voice, but I think also she has invited other earthbound spirits. I think he's possessed by many spirits. You know, once you have one spirit in there, your, your auric door is open and others can come in. And so I think he's hearing uh, a number of, uh, of, of, of young, dead, earthbound souls who she has called in uh, to be with her. Listen, my heart, as only saints have listened, until the gigantic call, right, the call from the archangel, lifted them off the ground. Yet they kept on impossibly kneeling and didn't notice at all. So complete was their listening. So he wanted to stay grounded. He wanted to stay kneeling and have her levitate up and lift out out of the body. He's trying to convince her to, uh, to, to take that sainthood and, and uh, rise into the presence of God. But, he says, not that you could endure God's voice. Far from it. But at least listen to the voice of the wind and the ceaseless message that forms itself out of silence. It is murmuring toward you now from those who died young. Didn't their fate, whenever you stepped into a church in Naples or Rome, quietly come to address you? So, in other words, he's aware that, uh, that spirits of the dead, who tend to haunt churches, especially in Europe, uh, were, were calling her, and, and that uh, it, it was time for her to, to rise uh, out of the body and into the world of the dead. On, uh, or high up some eulogy entrusted you with a mission, as last year on the plaque in Santa Maria Formosa. Now, what plaque is that? You did you read the, the plaque and, and the message on it? In the end, in the notes to this one, uh, it gives what the, uh, the plaque says. Uh, it says, while life lasted, I lived for others. Now, after death, I have not perished, but in cold marble, live for myself. Okay, and then it, there's more about 
the, the guy who wrote this. But this was a plaque in the church. He's telling her, live for yourself. Don't live now uh, for your mother or for me to fulfill the command to be a poet and to stay earthbound, but, but rise. What they want of me is that I gently remove the appearance of injustice about their death, which at times slightly hinders their souls from proceeding onward. So he's saying she thinks it was unjust that she died when she was a week old. She didn't get to have a life. And she ain't going to leave and go to the light without getting the enjoyment of a life as a woman. But he, she can't get it in his body. And, and he's trying to convince her that it's her karma and it's not unjust and uh, she should accept it and, and go on and uh, meet her destiny straightforwardly. And, and he's saying, you know, don't worry about, uh, about dying. Uh, you'll get used to it, you know. So he says, of course it's strange to inhabit the earth no longer, to give up customs one barely had time to learn, not to see roses or other promising things in terms of a human future, no longer to be what one was in infinitely anxious hands. In other words, the mother's hands when she was a baby to leave even one's own first name behind, right? The name Renee that she doesn't want to give up. By the way, in the end, the last relationship he was with, with Baladine, she called him Renee again. He went back in, into, she won out in the end and, and, uh, and, and she, she took over in the end. So, uh, uh, to leave even one's own first name behind, forgetting it as easily as a child abandons a broken toy. He didn't abandon his toys, however. He kept ta talking about them in all of his poems. The toy uh, was a, a key symbol as a transitional object uh, that one takes on before, uh, before one can, can relate to another person but is weaned by the mother, one takes a teddy bear or another uh, a blanket or something as one's, one's object, one's love object. Uh, and, uh, and, and they were each other's uh, toy, each other's uh, a, a transitional object. And the grief that each one gave the other what, what became their toy. So strange to no longer desire one's desires. Strange to see meanings that clung together once floating away in every direction. And being dead is hard work and full of retrieval before one can gradually feel a trace of eternity. In other words, she's working hard. He's, he's, he's approving of her. She's trying to put things together that will enable her to let go of her attachment to, to his body uh, so she can feel eternity and rise into the light. Though the living are wrong to believe in the two sharp distinctions which they themselves have created, angels, they say, don't know whether it is the living they are moving among or the dead. The eternal torrent whirls all ages along in it through both realms forever, and their voices are drowned out in its thunderous roar. Right, The roar of the wheel of karma uh, the roar of uh, the phenomenal plane. But uh, he knows the taste of death in life, but he doesn't know the taste of being fully alive. So he says, it, 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 the, this elegy ends, in the end, 
those who were carried off early no longer need us. I think he's trying to convince her of that, right? Uh, they are weaned from earth's sorrows and joys as gently as children outgrow the soft breasts of their mothers. But we who do need such mysteries, we for whom grief is so often the source of our spirit's growth, could we exist without them? You see, so now he's saying, do I really want her to go? Because will, will I know how to be a man? Uh, and will I know how to be alone in the body? Will I be able to handle that solitude without her voice? In the legend, uh, is the legend meaningless? That tells us how in the lament for Linus, <clears throat> I'll go into what that's about, the daring first notes of song pierce through the barren numbness. And then in the startled space, which a youth as lovely as a god had suddenly left forever, the void felt for the first time that harmony which now enraptures and comforts and helps us. So Linus, this ancient Greek figure, uh, when he dies, it awakens Orpheus. And Orpheus comes to the, the numb people who are in grief over the death of this young hero and begins to sing and brings them back to life. And so uh, she wants her to die it for real out of his body and leave a void in which the first time both of them can feel the harmony that will enrapture and comfort and help us. They want both life and immortality, but they can't afford to pay the price because of their fear of separation. The attachment that's a love-hate relationship between the brother and sister who are also lovers and, uh, and also identical cyanide twins, not Siamese, but cyanide, because they're both dead and, and, and in a suicide pact of being unable to fully be alive authentically because uh, they, they cannot uh, separate life from death and act in accord with the demands of both. Okay, that's the first elegy. Did, did my interpretation make sense to anyone? Yeah? Did, did anyone feel any of this going on before uh, I, I talked about this? Yeah, you did? All right. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.